0: Um, and uh, is preaching this morning on sex and sexuality. Um, Nick, can I pray for you before you start if you're if you 're all set up? Nick is uh, our senior pastor, Nick and Naomi uh, together with Paul and Fran, lead the church here in didcom Great Lord um, I just pray that you give Nick uh, all the wisdom that he needs to preach on this topic. Um, I pray that you will open our hearts to hear what he has to say, to understand the message and that it comes from um, a love for others, um, not from condemnation. Um, And I just pray that um, we will really be impacted by what he shares with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, I have noticed something recently, particularly as we've been doing this series. Um, preachers often seem to complain about the topics I give them. Um, this series, I've given myself two to talk on uh, sex and relationships today, and then sexuality and gender on the, uh, November the 17th. So um, I feel a bit miffed because I've got no one else I can complain to. It's my fault. Um, oops. Um, so... Well, this is really going disastrously. Oh, well. Um, But actually, I'm really pleased to talk about this because um, attitudes to sex pervade our news and our culture, Um, and Christians can be seen as negative or fuddy-duddy, but actually, the gospel is good news in all areas, including this one of sex and relationships. Okay, so what am I going to talk about? I'm going to be talking about sex in the news, um, different cultural aspects of how people view uh, sex today. I'm going to talk about good news about sex, how the gospel uh, transforms everything. Um, I'm going to look at some specific instructions from the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, where Paul is writing uh, Christians to tell them what it what it is to to live a holy way um, in this world, and then finally something about living well in a sex mad world. Okay, so hopefully you're not feeling too embarrassed. I'm feeling all right actually, surprisingly. Well, there you go. But let's let's press on. Um, I think in our culture and in our news, I I feel like there are. Five different approaches or five different strands you can see in the way that people talk about, about sex and relationships. Um, one is actually about cheapening sex, if you like, saying that it is purely about a physical urge. I, uh, one of the, um, I read a lot of news, particularly on the BBC website this week, uh, you know, some of it. Uh, not terribly, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, encouraging, but that sort of thing. Different people's views of, of sex. This one is about, the seduction game was a sort of expose of a group of, uh, where guys go on training courses for how to seduce women. Um, and it's about devaluing sex, uh, saying it's not actually really important, it's just about a physical urge. Uh, the nature of the relationship doesn't really matter as long as you enjoy it. Things that we see in our culture, like telling crude jokes, like pornography, like all this stuff, are about saying, actually, it really doesn't matter, it's not important, it's just about satisfying what you feel, and it doesn't matter how that impacts other people. So one strand we see in our culture and in the news is about cheapening sex, is saying it's not very important. Another strand we see is actually the idea of exalting sex and saying, it's amazing, it is the best thing, almost making it a god, um, saying life is not complete without it. Celibacy is not a good way of life. Not, I've seen articles saying it's not a healthy way of life even. Um, how can people be fulfilled without sex? Um, I feel like I'm sounding very old when I say this, but the music that sort of I grew up with in the 80s, Okay, anyone remember music of the 80s? There was quite a lot about this love is going to last forever or I thought this love was going to last forever and it hasn't. Those was, that was the sort of general theme of a lot of pop music. Oh, this sounds awful. Pop music today. <laughs> Doesn't that sound old? Anyway, um, what I noticed when I listened to music today, actually, that sort of idea of love lasting forever is pretty much gone in most music. And actually... It's so, there's such a focus on, on sex and the, the moment of attraction or whatever being like this wonderful spiritual experience and that's it, you know what I mean? Um, Ed Sheeran, uh, The Shape of You, that's an example, isn't it? You know, That's not sort of about a, much of a sort of, you know, this is going to last forever, it's like, you know, it's basically, I'm in love with The Shape of You, you know, let's not get into personality, etc. So there's a whole lot of stuff out there and it's like exalting sex, saying it's this amazing, this godlike thing. Um, another strand is expressing oneself through sex. about self-expression. Um, it's about who we are, being who we want to be. Um, the important thing is that. Um, obviously, the whole trend f- uh, with L- LGBT culture, which I'm going to be talking about more on 17th of November, um, is uh, part of, uh, fits into that. Um, I just picked up this news uh, today about Ian Watkins um, being the first, there's going to be a same-sex couple in in Dancing on Ice um, this year. Um, But this sense of actually sex is about self-expression. Okay. Um, Selling stuff through sex. Sex is a marketing tool. I didn't get a picture for this because whenever I looked at various (laughs) pictures I might use, I thought, I just don't want to use that one. Um, But... To be honest, actually, that's been a bit of a problem throughout this talk, but anyway, we won't get into that. Um, (laughs) Let's hope no one looks at my computer having prepared for it. Uh, To be honest, I really, uh, you know, sex sells stuff. You know, advertising, a lot of it is about sex. Um, You know sex is in the newspapers so much, that's because it sells newspapers. Um, There's this great story of, um, you remember that MP uh, expenses scandal a few years ago? Um, The scoop... That was turned down initially by um, Rebecca Wade at it the Sun or the News of the World. I can't remember why, but she ba- who it was, but she basically turned down this scoop because she thought the story was too much about receipts and not about sex, not enough about sex. So she didn't think it would be worth spending lots of money to buy the the scoop on um, sex tells stuff. And people often see it in that way. And the final thing I wanted to pick up is actually uh, sex as abuse. Um, I read this article this week from uh, Elizabeth O'Hene, who is a, a Ghanaian uh, journalist and former uh, government minister, explaining the, the impact to her of being abused as a child has had on her. And um, it's a huge and awful thing. And as the whole Me Too movement has shown, um, it's horrifically common. Um, it's statistically likely that a number of us in this room have been has suffered some form of sexual abuse or harassment. Um, you know, and that is awful. It's not what God intended. It's dreadful. Um, but there is God's grace, and there is healing, and there is help. But I just wanted to pick up five different sort of things that we see with our culture about sex. And I want to then talk about a Christian view of that. So there's all this squirreling around. And it can be hard to think, how do we fit in here? How do we make sense of this? What should a Christian viewpoint be on this? We may feel that our views on sex are really out of kilter with those around us. And we might be asking, am I still right? And if so, how do I I stand up for this? We may be looking at a traditional Christian view of, of sex and marriage that sees sex to be restricted to a a lifelong heterosexual marriage relationship and think, I don't know how that could work or how that could fit for me or how that copes with my past or my present life. We might be married and struggling and saying, this isn't all I thought it would be. The good thing is, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Indeed, the world in which the good news about Jesus sort of broke in in about 30, 40, 50, 60 AD. Um, the New Testament, we call it the Greco-Roman world, the world of the Roman Empire and sort of a, and Greek culture um, all across Italy and Greece and what's now Turkey and that sort of thing. Um, that uh, world actually had remarkable similarities to our own in this area of sex and relationships. It was one in which, in some ways, sex was idolized and made spiritual, even being part of uh, worship at the temples of some gods. Sexual immorality, at least for men, uh, was widely accepted. And homosexuality, or or more often bisexuality, actually, was very common. Um, And yet, where sex was cheap... um, where many kinds of sexual abuse were prevalent and, you know, some quite difficult, difficult situations. Into this maelstrom, the gospel brought good news about forgiveness, about commitment, about love, about the value of people. And that transformed these new Christians' views of sex and of relationships and transformed, ultimately, society around that. So what the Christians taught and came to embody then actually became the norm for the society around them, ultimately. Christians said three key things in this area about sex. One thing they said is that basically sex is less important Than you think, Um, because ultimate satisfaction, purpose, pleasure is found in knowing God. And you can be accepted in Christ as you are, notwithstanding your relationship status. Ultimately, said, actually, is less important than you think. What really matters is knowing God. In another sense, they said, actually, sex is more important than you think, because. It's both deeply physical and spiritual, but also because the marriage relationship of which it's a crucial part is a picture of Christ's amazing relationship with his church. It's called his bride. And three, that the good news, the gospel, the good news about Jesus saving people, changing people, brings transformation to all areas, including this. So we're going to look particularly at the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul in about 55 AD to Christians in the Greek city-state of Corinth. That's meant to be a picture of Corinth up there. Um, A place which had a reputation for sexual immorality, actually, but where the gospel had begun to bring transformation in people's lives. And we're going to see how that fits for us today. We're going to pick it up in chapter 6. Now, I've put all the text on the screen, but if you would like to follow in a Bible, there are some at the back, and Gray is sort of going backwards, and so if you wave a hand, he'll probably give you one if you'd like one. I think you're all right. Thanks. Um, Okay, so we're going to pick this up in chapter 6, verse 9. So Paul's writing to this church trying to help them with how they live in that society. And he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor men who have sex with men nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's writing to people from a very mixed sexual and other sin background. But they share something in common now. They have come into a relationship with Jesus and have been cleaned up, made holy and accepted by God because of Jesus. They've experienced the power of the gospel. That whoever they are, whatever they've done, because Jesus died on the cross for them, they can be forgiven and changed. This is the good news for us today. We can be washed. The guilt, the shame, the sin can be cleaned out. You know when you've done something, some job or whatever, and it's really dirty and you're covered in muck and you go into a shower and just sort of wash it all off. It's like God wants to do that on the inside. He wants to clean us up on the inside. He wants to clean out where there's shame, where there's pain. I thought Rachel's testimony about giving your pain to God as a gift really struck me. He wants us to give that so he can clean us. He wants to sanctify us, to help us live holy lives. If we trust Jesus, we choose to follow him. He justifies us He gives us righteous standing before God. It's just as if we never sinned, is a way of saying it. There is a problem in Corinth, however. Some of these new Christians are saying, well, because I've been forgiven and made holy by God, because I'm justified, because I've been set free in Christ, and because it's spiritual things, not physical things that really matter, I can do what I like with my body. So it's fine to keep on with casual sex and using prostitutes. They're saying, I'm not saying it, they're saying that. They've kind of missed the point. But let's read on what Paul says to them. So, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it's said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies." In this letter, Paul seems to be responding to things he's heard about the church or that they've written to ask him about. And he's quoting some phrases uh, that they've been using about their freedom in Christ. I have the right to do anything, people are saying. And saying things that it's spiritual things, not material things like, like food and sex that really matter. If it no longer matters to put kosher food into my body, so body that it, food that is all right from a Jewish law point of view, if that doesn't matter anymore... Um, because God's made everything clean, people are saying, surely it doesn't matter how I have sex. Paul's response is, actually, our bodies matter to God. And the amazing truth is that if we trust in Jesus, we're spiritually united with him. Our bodies are part of his body. But he also points, here in a a negative sense, to one of the amazing things about sex in the Bible. When people have sex, it's it's not just physical. In biblical terms, it's deeply spiritual. And in some ways, two individuals become one flesh. In biblical terms, that's what happens when people get married. There is this incredible picture in Genesis 2. Um, Again, I wanted to find a picture to illustrate this, but don't look at pictures of Adam and Eve on Google. It's not good. Um, So where uh, God takes one of Adam's ribs and forms Eve and brings them together. And Adam is like, wow! Wow! This is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Um, and it then says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. That's why sex within the context of a marriage relationship can be a amazing strengthening of the bond of intimacy. It's what God intended it to be. It's a picture of two individuals in some way becoming one new being, different being greater than some of its parts. But if you take that incredible combination outside the protective context of marriage, it can be destructive. What happens when you've become united, one flesh with someone that you're not meant to be united with for a lifetime? If or when that relationship breaks up, it can be like there's some part of us inside that gets torn apart. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6.18, He tells us to flee from sexual immorality. It's damaging our own bodies, our very beings. God has better things for us. He wants us to be free to know his love and live his ways. That's the change he brought for many of these Corinthians, coming from that place, but finding healing and truth in Jesus. Having set these ground rules, uh, Paul goes on in chapter 7 to apply the good news about Jesus in specific uh, instructions about sex and relationships to different groups. Now we're married, now we're single, now we're in a relationship. How are we going to live as Christians? So let's read on. So this is uh, good news applied, beginning of chapter 7. Now, for the matters you wrote about. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Oops, Let's get these really out of the way. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her own husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this is a concession and not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. It looks like Paul is quoting them again. So someone has said, it's good not to have sex. And perhaps that makes sense for a church struggling with how do they live uh, holy lives in an unholy culture. Paul basically says, and this, is, this isn't rocket science, okay? It depends whether you're married or not. If you're married, do make love with your spouse and no one else. Um, can seem very counter, can seem very obvious to us, but it was really countercultural to them. The standard Greek philosophy was that a man married to have children but would go to prostitutes or slaves for pleasure and companionship. So the picture I showed uh, back at the beginning from that uh, Greek vase or Greek pottery is a picture of a man with a, a courtesan, a, um, a prostitute who would also play music and all that sort of thing, and, and that was considered to be how culture worked. Um, the wife had rights to food and material protection but not to relationship. I mean, that that was the culture into which the gospel came at this time. This section is extraordinary in that culture for telling men to stick to their wives and for the incredible equality it expresses between men and women. So the first part of verse 4 um, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. That they would have been, oh yes, of course, yes, that's what we'd expect. The wife hasn't got authority, you know, she yields it to her husband. The second part of that verse, in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. They would have thought of as utterly crazy, shocking, totally against what the culture said. Paul sets out expectations that sex within marriage should be a willing giving to each other. Mutually consensual. Elsewhere, husbands in particular are told to respect their wives as the physically weaker partner, which incidentally is a ban on domestic abuse, to love their wives and to give themselves up for them. There should be no room in Christian marriage for pressure or for abuse. Why? Because in one sense, sex is so important. In Ephesians Paul sorry, in Ephesians five, Paul lets us into a secret. Sex is not just physical pleasure. Uh, It's a spiritual joining uh, of a man and a woman. He quotes this Genesis, one flesh imagery. But then he goes on to say, actually, he's talking about Christ um, joining with the church. The delight, the intimacy uh, of sexual union that married sex can be is a picture of what it's going to be like for the church as a whole to be united with Christ in eternity. Is everyone okay? We're staying with this, yeah? Yeah, it's good. It's quite quiet. <laughs> not surprised, really. Okay, now we're going to read on about unmarried people. Now, there is a section in the middle, um, verses 10 to 24, which primarily talks about divorce and remarriage. I'm actually going to skip over that today because it's a huge issue which yeah, it's difficult to address properly within the context this morning and because it's something that needs working out carefully, uh, pastorally, um, in each situation. I think we could summarise Paul's teaching there on, by saying stay married if at all possible and remarry only in limited circumstances and very carefully. That would be to summarise what he says there. But let's uh, read the rest of it, I'm missing out on that bit. So, verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am, Okay, Paul, as we'll see, was at this point uh, probably unmarried, probably actually a widower. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And then a bit about divorce and remarriage, skip on to verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord. But I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. For those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as not as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried man, woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs in this world, how she completes her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. So now Paul addresses unmarried people. It's important to understand the cultural context. In the Greco-Roman world, Pretty much everyone got married, with the exception of some, but not all, slaves. To remain unmarried past the normal marrying age of mid-teens for women and 20-ish for men was viewed with huge suspicion. Actually, it was often considered a sign of immorality not to be married. When a husband or wife died, the expectation was that the surviving partner would remarry as quickly as possible. Uh, Paul here is addressing both Older unmarried people who would probably been married and lost their spouses. Um, and also younger and unmarried people who may well be engaged or in some form of engagement probably arranged by their families. In this context, Paul again says something striking. He says marriage, relationship, sex is not everything. It's all right to remain unmarried as he was. It's, as I said, he was probably a widower um, or indeed to be never married, as Jesus was. And actually, there are ways in which that makes it easier to serve the Lord in an undivided way, being devoted to God above all. In that culture, if Paul had been married, if he'd had a family, could he fulfil God's purposes for him in his great missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean? Probably not. And I think that speaks into our culture too, where relationships can seem like the be-all and end-all But what God says is what matters ultimately is serving him. There are challenges and joys in both the married and and single state. And as Christians, we need to be careful. We can rightly emphasize the importance of the marriage relationship and family life in a context of a society which doesn't believe in the permanence of marriage. But when we do that, there's a danger that we're going to under-emphasize the Christian call as well to singleness and to serving God wholeheartedly in that way. We need to see both as important because God is the one who has a gift for each of us. Paul, in fact, here says, I wish that you all as I am, i.e. single, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Okay, finally, I want to talk about um, just some... Some tips, really. We're in a what I call a sex mad world, where actually there's stuff about sex and temptation all over the place, and we can feel attracted often to people that we shouldn't really be attracted to, um, whether our relationships are good or difficult. And God wants to help us live holy, pure, and fulfilled life, serving Him in that context. And here are four pointers that I hope will help us. First thing is to set our hearts on God. Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Actually, sex promises to distract us or satisfy us, but actually it's God who ultimately can do it. Let's set our hearts on him. Recognize that we will all face temptation and choose to resist it. We all face temptation. Probably uh, all of, almost all of us face sexual temptation at some point. In one sense, that's natural. That's part of being alive. Um, we're going to get thoughts of attraction to people that we shouldn't. What matters is what we do with it. Martin Luther said, I can't stop birds flying over my head, but I can stop them building nests in my hair. And it's this idea of, you can't stop what you suddenly think about, but you can stop yourself from continually thinking about and going on thinking about something. It says in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful, He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Avoid unhelpful situations or people. That might mean not watching certain kinds of TV or putting filters on our internet to restrict pornography. It might mean being careful what we drink, recognizing that we have a weakness when we've had too much it might mean being careful how we socialize with people that we might be inappropriately attracted to. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, we read earlier, flee from sexual immorality. And finally, get help and find forgiveness. Whatever we've been through, when things do go wrong or when wrong is done to us, particularly in these sexual areas, there can be great shame and guilt, and that locks us up. We can feel like, no one else has done this. No, no one else has been like this. Shame traps us. But Jesus bore our shame on the cross and there is great power in, in confessing and opening up to people we trust and seeking forgiveness and cleansing. It says in the book of James, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's been a heavy topic this morning. Um, and I know that for many of us, this may have stirred feelings, memories, difficult things to cope with, questions about where we are today, uh, what, what is going on in our lives. Um, it may be that you want someone to, to talk to or pray with you. Um, you know, we're not going to do rush to the front and show everything you're struggling with today, not surprisingly. Um, But, you know, if there is someone you trust, I would encourage you to open up um, if there is an area like this that you want help in because shame locks us up. When we tell someone about it, we probably discover that actually they've been in similar situations or, you know, it's common what we face. But let's get help from God because he promises to help us. He knows we're all on a journey. He knows... We've been places and we want. he wants to make us more like Jesus. Is it all right if I pray and just finish up. Jesus, I want to thank you that you came to change us and make us more like you. I want to thank you that on the cross you bore our sin and our shame, that we could be forgiven and set free. I thank you that you know where we are and whatever stage of our journey of life we're on, you want to help us. And I pray for us all today that where what we've been speaking about may have opened wounds or faced us with difficult choices, I want to pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would guide us and help us. you give us comfort and forgiveness where we need it. you give us wisdom and a desire to follow you. And you would help us all. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks, Nick. Uh, um, I just want to echo that, actually. If um, if something that Nick has said this morning is has struck a chord or hit a nerve, um, make sure you act on it. I feel like we've come a long way from Norman introducing the service this morning to get to this stage. Um, but it's been brilliant. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, we're going to finish the service there. Um, do join us for tea and coffee at the back. Um, at the front, we're going to Just have some space for people to pray. Particularly, we're going to pray for Jansen, if you'd just like to come alongside him um, and pray for him. That would be brilliant. Maybe one or two of us could gather around him. But otherwise, um, uh, move to the back, help yourself to tea and coffee, and uh, we're back.